0: Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we are fully into the fall Asian tennis swing with some major events in Beijing and Tokyo. Bianca Andreescu and Gabby Dabrowski, the Canadians are both officially heading to the WTA finals and... We had Denis Shapovalov come close again this past week, reaching the semifinals at the Chengdu Open. But, Mike, uh, we'll start at the event that we were just at uh, last Thursday, uh, witnessing some great legends of the sport competing in Toronto at the Mattamy Athletic Centre.
1: Yeah, we had a little bit of a throwback uh, that night, you and me, watching uh, the likes of James Blake, Jim Courier, Andy Roddick, and Robbie Ginepri, uh try and recapture their old form. And it uh, didn't go quite as I expected. Uh, James Blake took out uh, Jim Courier in the first semifinal, and there's about a 10 year age gap, gap there, sorry. So, really, Blake was the one we thought would come through. But uh, then I was surprised by Robbie Ginepri, who had a one in nine career head and head against Andy Roddick back in their playing days. But it's quite different now because you just never know how much these guys are getting on the court. And uh, Ginepri surprised him to uh, face off against James Blake in the final. And uh Blake won that one six to four to capture the uh the Invesco event here in Toronto. What uh what did you make of it overall? How much uh how much fun was it for you watching these guys uh try and uh, get back to uh you know not their former selves, but uh you know, try and rekindle some of that magic for us.
0: Yeah, recapturing some glory days. Uh certainly James Blake was my, my favorite player of the night, and um I, I know you had the chance to speak with him at the event, but I, I thought he was Really striking a clean ball, uh, both sets he played. Jim Courier, I thought, kind of held his own given uh, his age. He still moves pretty well around the court, still has that beautiful forehand, which he can rip inside out. But James Blake, uh, he was, to me, hitting the biggest of anybody. And uh, I know he probably we probably don't reflect on James Blake and his one-handed backhand when we think of his career, but he had some pretty backhands up the line for winners. And I got to say, I was pretty impressed with Robbie Ginepri, uh to beat our guest from last week, Andy Roddick who was kind of struggling throughout that set to really find his footing and find the forehand, which was kind of a little loose and a little haywire.
1: I was uh, actually a little bit worried about all of them when I first arrived on site. I got there really early, like 2 that afternoon, and the event didn't start till 7. And the guys were just having like a light hit with each other, and they looked terrible (laughs) at first, I'm not going to lie. And obviously warming up, and it takes a little bit longer at that age. Uh, but they, they did get things uh, going once it uh, came to actual match time. Uh, it was also cool to see some of the people who had uh, signed up and, and paid some some bucks to go and hit with these guys beforehand as well. And, uh, you know, some of them uh, could, could hang with them for a few of the points until Roddick started to uh, throw his bombs in there. And at that point, there was really nothing they could do, but hope they guessed right to even get a racket off the ball at some point. Uh, but, uh, the, the, fans who were there certainly had a, a good time. There were a lot of laughs and, um, it was, it was cool to see that happen a little bit, uh, sort of too, too rich for my pockets, but, uh, kind of neat to watch from the sidelines. And then the event itself, I mean, we can talk about it a little bit more later, but uh, for right now, we did speak with, uh, I got a chance to speak with James Blake and Jim Courier. And of course we had Andy Roddick on the program last week, which was cool. And so why don't we start with uh, the champion of the evening? Here is uh,
2: my chat
1: with James Blake.
3: How uh, How's your game standing up these days, and, and how much are you getting out on the tennis court?
2: Not a whole lot, but uh, it's fun. I mean, the, the competitive nature comes back. As soon as you get out on the court, you just don't do the same kind of preparation. I'm not hitting very much at all. I get uh, I was hitting a little bit uh, a few weeks ago. Francis Tiafo came out to, to work with me a little bit, and so that was a lot of fun for me to get out there and hit with him. But other than that, I, I play these, and that's about it. What part of the game has held up the best since you've retired, and what part do you find is, is the hardest to kind of get back out
3: there and, and get back to that level or, or anything close to that level?
2: Yeah, surprisingly, the movement has st- stuck around a little bit. I'm, I'm, I can still run a little bit and I can still hit my forehand, but everything else is uh, is gone by the wayside. The serve, my shoulder feels terrible, so it just uh, it's tough for me to get uh, get much on my serve and my backhand. Not that it was ever good, but now it's uh, it's pretty abysmal. So I got I got to run some more and try to hit more forehands.
3: Who among the other uh, old timers or sorry legends, I guess I should yeah. call you guys has uh, has kept it up the best, would you say? And, and and who takes these things the most
2: competitively? Well, McEnroe takes it the most competitively for sure. Still, I mean, we all see that and we all know that about him. It's not an act uh, with him. He's serious. But um, Tommy Haas probably has kept it up the most. He still he still hits quite a bit and uh, gets out and hits with some of the current pros and stuff. So um, he's you know as the tour director Indian Wells, he gets out there and hits a bunch. And then in L.A. he's got a lot of friends that he hits with. So he stays in probably the best shape out of all of us. But we can uh, we still get out there and we compete. Speaking of tournament director, I, I think I saw somebody from John Wertheim saying that Miami's
3: looking for a, a, another tournament director. <laughs> Can you fill us in on what's going on Yeah, there?
2: I think he may have just phrased that a little wrong. The, the, some of the internal staff, um, has, there's been some turnover there. Um, uh, so there's just been, yeah, there's been turnover, but I, my job's still there. <laughs> Unless I got fired over Twitter, I, which I don't think happened. <laughs> um, I'm still there, and I've, I've still got – we've actually been having, having a lot of talks this week with, uh, with some of the IMG guys, some of the staff. And, um, and all the, the progress we're making, and some improvements for next year. So we're we're still uh, we're still chugging along, but there's been some uh, some changes in the staff. What, what are the challenges of that role for you? Well, it's been uh, it's been different because you know, the first year I was there was the last year at Crandon Park. Last year was the first year at the Hard Rock Stadium. So you're kind of learning all new both times. And now this year, um, I thought it'd be a little more um, comfortable. But now with some of the shakeups in the staff and, and different. Uh, different staff members I got to deal with um, and that they'll have to deal with me more like is uh, it's gonna be interesting I think Steven Ross and his team coming in uh, they've been very helpful but I think they're gonna kind of want to put their stamp on it so it's gonna be really interesting this year um, and every year it's been a little more learning on the job and I, I love the the challenge and some of the challenge is making sure that doing everything you can to make the players happy but not being too much of a player sort of director you also need to realize which is it's tough for the players to realize for coming especially coming from a former player, that you need to make sure the sponsors are happy, you need to make sure that the fans are happy, you need to make sure that the TV is happy, and all the ticket, uh, you know, the ticket holders. And so, you really got to make sure that there's a there's a balance to everything you're doing. And I try to do everything I can to within reason to make the players happy, but you got to be uh, got to be reasonable too. What
3: else is keeping you busy these days, perhaps outside of tennis? I see a lot of your tweets these days, obviously, are about more social justice,
2: political yeah. type of issues. Yeah. What what's keeping you busy and keeping your focus these days, mostly? Thanksgiving busiest is my two kids and that's it's the most enjoyable is most fun most rewarding Um, I love being home I love the um, sort of the luxury I've been afforded with uh, my career being so young in my in my life that uh, my main career is done so now I'm home a lot I'm at drop-off I'm I'll be tomorrow I'll be at the barbecue lunch with my kids at school you know I'll take them to take them to soccer practice and flag football practice and you know have fun with them and you know that's that's been the most fun for me and I, I still work enough to keep me busy especially with uh... staying involved in tennis with a torn director role in miami open tennis channel um, analyst and then uh... playing these events so it's enough to keep me busy but not too much to keep me away from my kids uh, more than i'd ever want to be how old are your kids right now and seven and five okay and uh, tennis rackets in their hands yet how's that a going? a little bit the older one uh... loves everything right now in terms of uh, being athletic her favorite right now i think is flag football she loves soccer uh... she played basketball last season i think she said she wants to play baseball at some point too so I just love the fact that she's active and doing everything and tennis they, they still play they, did, they both did a little uh, little like one week camp this summer and it's more just uh, it's a little more babysitting than actual tennis uh, at, that, at that age with them and they're just, just learning and having fun so if they pick it up great I'll be there as a resource if they don't uh, I'd be happy to be a, a soccer dad, or a, you know, a track dad, or whatever they want to do. Swimming. They love. They both love swimming too. So I'm happy with them to find. It. I don't care what they do, as long as they're, they're passionate about something. Uh, speaking of people being passionate about things on the ATP Tour these days it seems like a lot of
3: players are looking for improvements in terms of sharing of revenue and there's been some changes going on in terms of the leadership behind the scenes as well was that stuff as big a deal back in your day we just didn't hear about it as much because of the lack of social media or do you find that it's occupying a bigger sort of space right now in the sport
2: yeah I think there was a lot of talk of it even when I was on tour there was um, there were rumblings and there there was always the feeling that the, the Grand Slams had the opportunity to pay more and now they've stepped up in my opinion since i retired in 2013 i think the prize money has more than doubled in most of the slams so that's that's a huge jump as compared to the 14 years i was on tour i think it didn't even double in 14 years and now it's doubled in 6 years so it is going in the right direction, but I also understand from the players' point of view that you always want to feel like, hey, you, we're the ones that are out there that are product. We're the ones that are um, putting in the, the early mornings, the lifting, the training, the getting on planes, the doing all this to, to get out there and put on the put on the, the best performance. So we should be paid fairly. And um, so I understand both sides. It's just I think it does get way more attention now because partly some of the players at the top are very, very involved and they're absolute international superstars and icons. So um, for them to get involved, it makes a big difference. And also just the the prize money is already so big and visible that then it it gets distorted in the press, I think, sometimes because you don't want to look like you're you're, you've made a hundred million dollars and you're complaining you deserve more. It's more that they're fighting for the players that are playing in the qualifiers and playing in challengers and should be making a living when they're 150 in the world and they're they're just kind of just getting by at that at that uh, level.
3: Right on. Just to wrap up with you, but what's your future in the sport? Do you imagine or would you like to see happen? Are we going to see you at 60 years old like Johnny Mac no. still playing these <laughs> legends events? I,
2: I, I mean, I would love to say I, I would, but I don't think my body will hold up. I, I'm. Uh, I, I think John McEnroe is an absolute legend and and someone that. Uh, that also is blessed with unbelievable genetics to be able to still be playing and not be injured at that age, and, and also work ethic, he still, he still trains uh, for these, so that's a good effort by him. I don't see myself, I don't see my body lasting, I don't think I have that kind of a ability, so that's why it's been fun for me to be a torrent director, because that's something you can do without having to be as physical, um, so uh, hopefully something in that way, and maybe an analyst still, but I, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm i really, really lucky that everything I've learned on tour, I'm trying to still be able to use in, turn, in my role role as a torrent director and role as an analyst. Maybe down the road I'll be a coach. I don't know. Right now I don't see that because I don't want to leave my kids uh, that much and be on the road 30 weeks out of the year. But from what I hear, girls at about 12 or 13 years old, they don't want their dad around because he's not cool. So maybe by then, if they don't want me around, maybe then I'll go coach. I don't know. I just I, I love being around the sport. I love being a part of it as much as I can right now without being away from my family too much. Well, hey,
0: thanks for stopping by and taking the time yeah. with us. And thanks. have
2: fun tonight. Thanks a lot. Okay. Appreciate it.
0: And there you have it, James Blake, uh, former world number four, appearing on Matchpoint Canada. And uh, no surprise that uh, you confirmed right off the bat that it is John McEnroe who takes these Invesco Series kind of (laughs) champions nights the most seriously, Uh, just can't release uh, that competitive fire. Um, You think it might be a joke when he's screaming, uh, playing these these legends matches, but he is not. But uh, James Blake, uh, I think he's selling himself short. He can still go out and play some quality tennis uh, at the age of 39.
1: Yeah, I I love the, the stuff about McEnroe because to me and I've seen Johnny Mack a few times before in these types of events and I always thought it's just an act, you know, he's just doing it to play up to the crowd because that's what they want to see, you know, that's what they paid for that kind of thing. But actually James Blake confirmed and he's the second player to do so cuz Roddick said the same thing last week to us. He actually takes it seriously and he actually gets ticked off when things are not going his way. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Tom Tebbett before the event, and he reminded me of a a, a similar night in Hamilton about eight, ten years ago. And John McEnroe let go an F bomb in the middle of the match. And, you know, you could hear everything in in that sort of setting, especially when the arena's not full. And everybody just stopped because they thought, okay, he's he's just joking, right? But he was serious. And it, like, sucked the life out of the crowd that night in Hamilton because everybody was just shocked and didn't know what to do next i mean here was like a 52 year old man who's having a meltdown but it's for real you know
0: Mm -hmm. uh that's that's hard to hard to imagine but uh it it can take place on these champions nights luckily we didn't see any of that it it was all in good fun and and also a little bit competitive and uh i I thought blake had a nice set with jim courier uh which we won six to three and then the surprise finalist, Robbie Genepri uh, appearing there. You, you wonder what's in store for these, this event, uh, I guess, in years to come, because, uh, you know, I liked the four players that we did get at the Mattamy Athletic Center, uh, but I want it to be maybe a night that uh, people are a little more aware of, and I, I think uh, a, a little bit more promotion could go a long way.
1: Yeah, for sure. There could have been uh, some some changes done there in advance to get more fans in the seats. Everything I heard from the people who went, including, you know, some of our listeners who got some tickets from them, uh said that it was really enjoyable. But the crowd was very sparse uh, and it was half-half between like your fanatic tennis fans who heard about the event and then the corporate crowd that was really kind of just more into the schmoozing and making connections and whatnot Mm -hmm. and really wasn't paying too much attention to the tennis. So it was disappointing on that level. I'm sure for the players, it must be a little bit sort of unsettling too when you walk out and you notice there's only maybe like 300 people, 400 people watching. Uh, So a little bit disappointing from, from their side of things. I wonder in terms of what they could do different. Uh, I mean, the players definitely seem like a good group. Robbie Ginepri who came in last minute to fill in for Mark Filipusis, Um To me, those weren't players that I really grew up watching, with the exception of Jim Courier. I kind of enjoyed these events maybe five to ten years ago when you still had guys like Sampras, Agassi coming out, mm-hmm. um, Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg, who I've seen way back. Those were the ones that I got really attached to as a kid. So it's not the same when it's guys that you're watching that you didn't necessarily look up to from your childhood years. Um, or maybe you got to get a few guys that are more recently retired, like Tommy Haas, who was at the top of the leaderboard and only retired last year, who's still playing maybe a little bit better tennis too, although we were you know, surprised by some of the level. Uh, I think the tennis also could have been maybe a little bit sharper, but you're never going to get what you once saw from these guys, and that's you know kind of to be expected as well. But I think they got to make some tweaks because, um, you know, an event like this, in a city like Toronto, how can you not have more than, than that sort of a crowd? I think,
0: yeah, and this is what I heard from just a, a few people uh, around the Toronto area who are tennis fans uh, that didn't see the the event, they actually weren't aware that it was happening. Uh, so, that, that tells you something about the promotion of the event. And then, names like James Blake, great player, former world number no. four, fantastic career, even Jim Courier, a very, very underrated career. And I feel like those types of names, of course, we know them quite well, but they aren't made be the household names that the casual sports fan is fully aware of and recognizes. Wow. One of the greatest tennis players is coming out for this special legends nights. And those are where the Agassiz and Sampras and so on. Uh, would certainly help out the event. I had, a, I had a thought when we were watching, can you imagine five years from now, Roger Federer playing one of these legends nights? <laughs> I, I think he would just absolutely dominate. I, I think he would be untouchable, uh, but I, I also can't it'll, picture it'll him fall. doing
1: that. That's when it'll fold because John McEnroe will have like a, a heart attack getting so angry on match <laughs> against him that he'll storm off and, and keel over and that'll be the end of it. But um, I think Federer will have probably his own things that he'll be working on. Oh, yeah. This one is more the uh, the brainchild of Jim Courier and his company Inside Out uh, Entertainment. And, and Jim started this uh, about 15 years ago. And uh, he took some time as well before the event to stop and chat about uh, how he's seen the growth of the event over the years. Um, what what it means to him 20 years almost since his last Grand Slam to still play some uh, semi-competitive tennis. And uh, he had three young players that he singled out that uh, really have caught his eye this season. And uh, I won't spoil it. You'll have to have a listen and find out uh, who they were.
0: Yes, and uh, without further ado, here is your interview with Jim Courier.
3: I'm going to start by asking you something I meant to ask last time I saw you and it slipped my mind. Okay. So it's kind of an odd starter, but how have you avoided not being on Twitter for all this time?
4: Well, it's funny. I started off on Twitter in the very, very early days because our PR guy for this tour got an account for me. And it was, this must have been 2007 or 2008. And I did it for like two or three months to promote an event and then I quickly realized how much time I was wasting on it. And I decided that that was not for me. So that's uh, that was my experience. I had a really brief experience with it, and I have no desire to be on it.
3: So, so don't hold our breath. We're not going to see you on there anytime I soon. I
4: have no interest in being on there. I'm I'm uh, I know it's great for a lot of people, but I'm I'm anti-social media.
3: Right on. Um, the older guys on the ATP Tour these days seem to have a stranglehold still. Does that apply in Invesco Tennis? Are you going to no. show the young guys
4: how it, <laughs> I how wish it goes that, tonight? I wish that were the case. Uh, so far that's not been true. The younger guys are coming in strong now. I mean, guys like the guys I'll be playing tonight, guys like Tommy Haas and Leighton Hewitt and Juan Carlos Ferrero is coming into play later this year. Um, it, it's going to be a challenge, yeah, and I like a challenge, but uh, I've been putting in the work so that's what it takes I've got to be on the court I've got to be uh, sharp to be able to compete with these guys.
3: So what parts of your game do you still like or are you still satisfied with and what's the hardest thing to maintain?
4: The good things remain good so my serve and my forehand tend to tend to be pretty reliable for me and the weaker parts of my game my backhand and my volleys just if I'm not doing them as much as I need to be they can be a little bit faulty so yeah. It's all about repetitions for me. If I'm in good form and, and calm on the court, things happen in the right way. In terms of some of
3: your contemporaries from when you were on tour, like Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, they were doing these events yeah. for a while. Has that time come and passed, do you think, for them? Or I might you see them again in the future? I can't speak. The
4: door is always open for, for them to come and play whenever they want. So it's totally on, the, on their call. They've earned that right to... Play if they want to, and not play if they want to just hang home too. So, um, not sure. Not sure if they're slated to play anytime soon or not. I hope so, though. It'd be fun to be back out there with right them. On.
3: You've been obviously behind the scenes doing this for quite some time now. Are you happy with how the tour has sort of progressed over the years in terms of its entertainment value, yeah. its financial returns, and just the enjoyment that you and the other guys have from doing it?
4: Yeah. Look, I, I think we've made a nice evolution with this tour, moving away from multi-day events and having fewer events, but or three or four-day events in, in one location and doing now these 10 one-night events around North America. And I think that's been a real success for us to be able to get to more towns, uh, to get in front of more fans, and to have that that pop and and, uh, kind of a little bit of a snap when we come into town as opposed to a slow roll. So, uh, so far so good. We're still going on year 15. So, uh, so far so good. It's
3: hard to believe. And and speaking of, you know, years and milestones, if I'm not incorrect here, January will be 20 years since your last Grand Slam appearance in Australia. To me, that, I find that really surprising. Can you believe that that, that milestone is sort of coming up yeah, already?
4: Yeah, I mean, I can, actually. It's funny how, you know, time just, it morphs. As, as I've become older, for me, it's just, it's changed and morphed. And it used to seem like it took forever for time to fly. And as I've gotten older, I like, like most people's experience, it seems like it goes really quickly. So, yeah, I think I'm a near... 15 or 16 of doing television in Australia when I get back down there. So uh, I can believe it's been 20 years because I almost feel like that there's sort of two different lives that I've been living in Australia between playing and commentating.
3: Back in the day when you'd hit sort of 30, it seemed like for most players that was nearing the end. Yeah. And now we've got Roger who just turned 38. Novak and Rafa aren't getting any younger either, but the three of them are still dominating. And other guys in their 30s are doing quite well yes. also. What's the difference between now and, and back then? Obviously three of the all-time greats, so that sure. says something. But what in terms yeah. of...
4: I think you could sort of put those guys aside and what they're achieving is at a, at a different level. They're just, I mean, obviously they are who they are for what the game is. But there are other players in their 30s, guys like John Isner and Feliciana Lopez and in, in their 40s even with Karlovic yeah. that have found a way to be at their best later in the career. And I think as much as anything, there's a, a, been a mental shift for players deciding they were going to play longer and planning for it. There's obviously the prehab and the rehab that they're doing to make sure that they stay healthy and fit. And I think it's really important for those players also to take mental breaks uh, as much as anything, because 30 was sort of the end of the line for, for most of the players in my generation. And that seems to be kind of the midlife point for players these days, mid-career point. But younger
3: players on the ATP or even the WTA Tour are exciting you these days that you want to come watch and you think are going to bring more fans to the table once the Serenas yeah. and the Rodgers and Novaks do retire one day.
4: I know I'm in Canada, so this will be a popular answer, but it would go. have been my same answer no matter what. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Felix and, and Dennis, and I'm a big fan of Bianca and her, and just the the variation that she brings to the game is super exciting. Uh, there are other very good young players that I'm interested in as well. To, for, but they're uh, three really bright lights, that I think are going to offer us a lot of en- entertainment and a lot of excitement over the years. So, um, you know, North American tennis is going great. It's funny, the
3: first time I saw you doing one of these events yeah. was in Hamilton, Ontario, about 10 years ago, yeah. and John McEnroe joked with me and said Canada would have a top 10 player if the sport was played on ice. And here we are now, it's legitimately happening. Yeah. It's quite a change for our, our nation. Do you think a, a sort of rivalry in tennis between Canada and the U.S. could be something that, uh, that hey, fans might if, see for the if, first time? If
4: it's something that sparks uh, it sparks more high-level play, I'm all for it. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's a great thing to have someone that you're chasing, someone that can make you better. We've seen that with the big three of men's tennis and, how they, and, and Andy Murray and Stan Vavrinka, how they had to evolve to catch each other and pass each other, and it just kept handing the baton. So if that's what happens between Canada and the United States, I think that would be a great thing. And for you yourself, just
3: to wrap up, uh, will we be seeing you at the age of 60 like Johnny Mack still doing these types of events? What do you see the future <laughs> with you in tennis uh, at a gr-
4: and That is a really great question. Um, I would doubt it. I would doubt that my game would allow me to play competitively at 60, at, at least in front of a public like this. Um, John's game is rather unique in that it, it's more feel based and it's not as power driven. Um, so I, I would. Love to be lucky enough to be competitive at that age, but I think it's unlikely. I'm fairly realistic about my skill set. Uh, but I would hope to be involved in tennis in one one way or another um, as long as I'm viable. And I certainly love the sport, love to participate, love to be around it. So we'll, we'll see what uh, the future holds. But I'm just grateful to be here at 49, still giving it a whack. Well, right on. Thank you for bringing
3: this
0: event to my Toronto plan. again for Canadian fans and, and for joining us as well. All right, thanks. There you have it, four-time Grand Slam champion Jim Courier, two French Open titles, two at the Australian Open. And I I hope that wasn't him just playing to our audience uh, by naming (laughs) three Canadians as his players to watch. I mean, Bianca Andreescu feels like the obvious one. She just won the U.S. Open. uh, And and so much has been made, of course, about Felix Oshiali and his terrific season. And Denis Shapovalov, I I think, was absolutely on everybody's radar a couple years ago and uh, is still uh, one of those rising names. So I want to say there is an element of truth and belief when, when he does name those three.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the only Invesco stop that's north of the border, so I'm sure at the other stops he's mentioning some young American players, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he seemed genuinely interested in what Dennis Chavavala, Felix orge and Bianca Andreescu can bring to the men's and women's game, to bring to the sport. And, uh, of course, they've been super exciting to watch this year. Bianca, of course, uh, with the, the one grand slam, a first for Canada. That's groundbreaking. Uh, Felix also, you know, outside of the top 100 at the start of the season, what a rise for him and a player that many outside of Canada weren't too familiar with. And Dennis has been on the radar for a little bit longer now, but as he's proven towards the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, when he's on, he's capable of some great things. So it's, it's nice to hear that confirmation from a great player like, like Jim Courier. We'll definitely take that compliment being Canadian tennis fans our, ourselves. And uh, it was uh, nice for him to stop by. I thought it was interesting that he's going to avoid getting on Twitter. I've, I've asked him because he's, he's a great voice in the sport, Jim Courier. I always love mm-hmm. listening to his commentating and his, his analysis. Um, but uh, you know what? Kudos to him for just staying away from Twitter because as you and I know and, and many of our listeners, it can get to be a little bit much sometimes.
0: Yeah, I will uh, never criticize anybody whatsoever for making the decision to avoid social media. You are well within your rights if you're not interested uh, to stay off of there, and uh, I, I can o- totally understand Jim Courier's decision. Uh, James Blake, on the other hand, we we see he's very active on social media, which is great as well. Uh, so it is your choice. And Jim Courier, uh, it doesn't sound like he's going to be joining it anytime soon as well. Uh, but we will talk about the Canadian names that he mentioned. All of them on this episode and uh, we'll start on the men's side because at the Chengdu Open, Denis Shapovalov, who Courier mentioned, uh, was competing and he reached the ATP semifinal, uh, his third now of his career and first this season before he fell to Pablo Carreño Busta, who would go on to win the tournament. Uh, Shapovalov certainly uh, brought his game back to, I think, an appropriate level. Uh, Really, since Rogers Cup in Montreal, that seemed to be a bit of a turning point uh, for him in this 2019 season because we saw the lulls through the clay court season through the grass court season uh at the same time i i'm seeing sort of a portion of the the tennis fan base and the canadian tennis fan base wondering when is he going to have the full breakthrough and earn himself an atp title
1: yeah it's so easy to get impatient when you're sitting at home right and, and watching other people <laughs> go out there and compete and do it so uh that's just fickle tennis fans, I guess. Or you could say it's people who are really eager to see him have a breakthrough. That have you know enjoyed watching what Bianca's done and want to you know support him and 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 support and and celebrate some accomplishments like that with him. So I guess it depends on how you look at it. Maybe a little bit of both. But you know he's gone eight and three since uh, Winston Salem uh, and uh, and and really picked up his his game there. Uh, I think from that that lull after the semis in um, oh gosh was it Miami or Indian Wells? I always confuse them. Uh, it was Miami. That's right. Okay. Yep. So semis in Miami. I mean, if you look at the season overall and you got that semifinal at a masters 1000, you've got some stronger play as of late. Uh, again, there's many players on tour that would really, uh, enjoy having those kinds of moments. Got to be patient. He's only 20 years old. So let's just all take a deep breath. And, uh, you know, you asked this question earlier was, can you have a strong season without reaching a final? And I think, of course, you can have a a very strong season despite not having a title or even a final to your name. And and the opposite can also be true is you can have an overall pretty weak or disappointing season, even if you've won one title or made a final, Mm -hmm. or even if you look at someone like Naomi Osaka, and not everyone's going to agree with me, but sure, she's got a grand slam in 2019 from Australia. But overall, I'd say it's a pretty disappointing season on the tennis court for her. So just because Dennis doesn't have that title yet and doesn't have that final, to me, uh, I can still look at the positive. And I think when you're 20 years old, if you're part of his coaching staff or part of his fan base, um, you've got to look for the positives, too, at this point.
0: Yeah, certainly. And uh, a, a lot that's occurring as well, as you're comparing Shapovalov with the evolution of some other young players. Uh, and, you know, we we've seen how incredibly well Stefano Tsitsipas has done and Alexander Zverev has done, Zverev being 22, Tsitsipas being 21 years of age, and maybe some fans thinking, well, why can't we see that type of progress from Denis Shapovalov? He's simply not quite there yet, uh, and and that's okay. Uh, A lot of these players are going to develop at a different pace, and I, I think Shapovalov, this is not, in any way a step back type of season uh, given that he has played better tennis through this summer and through the fall. You mentioned the 8-3 and three record uh, really improving uh, Winston-Salem and, and so on. So I, I'm curious how he can finish this 2019 season strong. He lost in a tough player in Pablo Carreño Busta. I was actually reflecting on those two. Uh, they had an encounter actually at the U.S. Open round of 16 in 2017 when uh, Pablo Carreño Busta made that surprise run to the semifinals there and he's been a player who's quite talented, a great grinder who's had a tough year and now starting to play great tennis again. So in my mind, he didn't lose to a nobody as well. Uh, We'll talk about Felix Ojeali Asim as well. He was in uh, at the Chengdu Open as well and first round loss for FAA and he's now dropped three straight First round matches dating back to Cincinnati. Uh, I could certainly say he's had an exceptional season if he drops, you know, the rest of his matches for the rest of the year. But Mm -hmm. now uh, I think you're seeing maybe the trials and tribulations of a 19 year old, maybe feeling just a little bit of fatigue towards the late end of the season.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I've got scribbled down here. Is It's, you know, to me, a long season that's taking its toll. I mean, it's a long season for us just watching all of this tennis, right? So imagine these guys actually grinding it out, traveling the world, different time zones, uh, all the attention, the grind of it all. And at his age, this is really the first time he's ever gone through something at this level in terms of number of matches, number of, you know, travel miles, hotels, in and out of distance from being at home, all of those things. Uh, I spoke to Francoise Abanda earlier this year, and she said she absolutely hates traveling. I mean, some players also just don't enjoy packing up and going hotel to hotel, city to city throughout the season. Mm. And so for Felix, he's getting used to all of this. He also played a ton of tennis early in the season. I mean, he's got a lot of miles under his belt in 2019. Yeah. So I think, you know, if we're looking forward to me, closing out 2019, stay healthy, Try to stay positive and make progress on the parts of your games that you want to improve upon between now and, you know, November or whenever you call your season, uh, you know, and and finish things up and then get some rest and, uh, you know, enjoy yourself a bit. See friends, see family, all these human element things, you know, social things that commentators don't usually talk about because they're so concerned about the X's and O's on the tennis court. But, you know, they're people, too, and these young people need to, um, you know, enjoy life a little bit as well. and and celebrate the positives from the season. So I hope Felix is able to do that and then come in fresh in, uh, in 2020.
0: Yeah. And look, like he's, he's still 19 years old and we got the same type of law from Dennis Shapovalov uh, late the previous season where he, he he admitted uh, readily that travel was taking its toll. And you look at the number of matches, as you mentioned, Felix was really front loaded for the schedule and that adds up 31 and 20 in ATP matches. you are talking about 51 matches and uh, we're just entering into October. So it's been such a long season. I, I hope he does get the appropriate rest and then you get a training, block to get yourself ready for the 2020 season. Uh, just to mention from last week as well, uh, Zhu High, it was 20-year-old Alex Diemenauer defeating Adrian Manorino uh, to win the title. And he now has three ATP titles this season and has moved up to 25th in the rankings. Uh, if you've had a chance ever to watch Demon Hour play, He, I think, has to be the fastest player on the tour. He's absolutely electric to watch. Uh, Don't try a drop shot against him because he will track it down. Uh, He's very, very impressive, Uh, you know, in that same age block with Denis Shapovalov. Uh, I wonder, I think his next step will have to be maybe adding a bit of muscle and a bit of size to hang with the very, very big guns in the top ten.
1: Yeah, he's got so much variety and he's proof that you don't need to be a power hitter to get up there. Uh, it's funny to me, he's kind of quietly done it in a way. When you said three titles, it's like, oh, yeah, he, he did that. You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't really you know, take notice in a sense as it was happening almost. Um, but I mean, look, we've got three guys, uh, you know, three whole guys at the top of the game right now that can't be taken off their perch and uh, it's not necessarily a power hitter that's going to come along and do it. So you've got to be smart out there uh, in order to challenge these guys and, and Dumenauer is, is super fun to watch. And uh, on a personal level, uh, Kamakshi Tandon did once tell me I looked a little bit like Dimon hour So uh, <laughs> I, I, I do kind of quietly root for him to uh, to have some success.
0: There you go. He could be like a younger brother to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, we will, uh, we will move on to some of the action on the ATP side this week. Uh, we have the Rakuten Open in Tokyo, Japan. And I wasn't necessarily anticipating that we would see Novak Djokovic this week, but uh, he has confirmed his return. He's in the draw, of course, as the top seed in the world number one. And this is his first match uh, since that loss to Stanford Frank in the round of 16 at the U.S. Open, where he was down two sets to love and subsequently retired from that match. He says his right shoulder is feeling fine and he should be ready to go. And an interesting milestone for Novak, uh, he just surpassed Ivan Lendl for third all-time, spending his 271st week as world number one. And that really uh, attests to Novak Joe and his sustained dominance in this sport for many, many years.
1: Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> um, and and he's won this event that he's in now six times. So if there's a good place to come back, it's a spot where you've had that prior success. Uh, but but to him passing Lendl uh, third all time, I mean, you knew it was going to happen. He, he belongs up there. Him and Rafa and Roger, it's, it's those three, the greatest ever. And no disrespect to Lendl. I mean, he's got eight slams. And made a bunch more finals, but uh, it doesn't surprise me that this is happening. It would have surprised me if if Novak didn't get there. So um, hopefully healthy and able to get through the uh, event without any issues. And uh, this discussion of number one uh, sort of, you know, raises an interesting debate, perhaps. And uh, you you came up with it, so I'll let you uh, introduce it here.
0: Yeah, and I I think it has been a topic discussed in the past, but it's a curious one of what is actually more challenging on the ATP or WTA Tour, for that matter, reaching the world number one or winning a Grand Slam. And uh, I'll let you give your answer first.
1: Okay, so when I was first kind of thinking this one through this afternoon, I started by writing, look at all the number ones who've never won a slam. But then I actually started looking into it and there aren't that many uh, number ones who haven't won a slam. On the women's side, in, in recent memory, Dinara Safina, Yelena Jankovic, uh, Karolina Pliskova, who's still active. Uh, and then on the men's side, the only name I could really come across, and again, this is the curse of the big three or four, mm-hmm. uh, but Mar- Marcelo Rios was number one, but never won a slam. So you know, you get roasted for being number one without a slam, but there really aren't that many who haven't done it. So it seems like, for the most part, if you're getting to number one, you have also won a slam. Uh, if you look at the women and the men, it's quite different there, and that was an interesting observation. This is me sidestepping around actually giving you an answer. But anyways, because <laughs> uh, on the men's side, uh, if you if you look back to it, the only... Um, Oh, where am I here? Give me a break. Uh, Andy Roddick was the last number one, world number one, outside of the big four. And that was back in 2004. We've only had uh, four number ones in the last 15 years on the men's side. Obviously, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and Andy Murray. Mm. On the women's side, so different. In that time since 2004, we've had 17 different female number ones, which is quite incredible. And obviously more slam winners as well, as we've had a bit of a revolving door these past couple of seasons. Uh, but just what a difference between the men's and the women's side, between the, uh, the number of people who are getting to, uh, to be number one in their respective fields. Uh, ultimately, I guess I'm just going to sit on the fence here. I don't know what's harder. It seems like on the men's side, it's impossible to do either right now, unless you're one of the big three. And on the women's side, there are more who are getting to enjoy both. So is it a 50-50? Are you going to be okay with that answer? Because that's, I guess, what I'm giving you.
0: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually okay with that answer because you're, you're right. There are so many details that that go into this. And the amount of parody that we've seen on the women's tour uh, with, as you mentioned, so many different uh, number ones kind of changing hands even just in the past uh, season or two, uh, I think currently uh, on the women's side, it is easier to become world number one than win a Grand Slam. Uh, That is not always the case. I think right now it is easier to become world number one than win a Grand Slam. We've seen Karolina Pliskova uh, sort of, you know, kind of get a backdoor spot into world number one based on, Failed results from another player who was trying to defend a title. Um, It wouldn't shock me if Alina Svitolina got there and maybe she didn't have a grand slam yet. Um, You look at Yelena Ostapenko and how she won her grand slam. That's a different story uh, because she kind of had an incredibly hot two weeks of tennis, seven matches, and then has not been able to sustain that level on the men's side. Uh, Both seem kind of impossible just because we've had that stranglehold from Big Four with Andy Murray when he was there in Big Three. You look at Stan Wawrinka, he's won three Grand Slam titles, but he's never reached world number one. Uh, So in that sense, it seems... Unbelievably difficult to become world number one, but then in that same breath, it's un- unbelievably difficult to win a Grand Slam if you're not one of those big three. So I'm what would also... you?
1: What would you rather, though? If you were a tennis player, what would you rather? Because to me, I the Grand slam. slam any day. Yeah. Right? I'm
0: taking the Grand Slam every single time. I'm sure Yelena Ostapenko would tell you that, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I, I wonder actually if Dinara Safina would trade that world number one ranking for a Grand Slam title.
1: Uh, well, I'm sure she'd trade it for just going back to those two finals she was in and having a do over because she got smoked, if y- memory serves y- correctly. Yeah yes
0: yes you're right and uh jelena yankovic another example of a fantastic player and i'm a little bit surprised that she actually never won that grand slam title uh so <laughs> we I, I don't think either of us produced a clear answer uh so maybe maybe we'll throw up the question on uh twitter for some of our listeners to answer that as well we will uh continue on though novak djokovic is now 15 weeks away from pete sampras at 286 he will have a bit of a challenge here retaining the end of year ranking he's uh ahead of nadal by 640 points in the rankings uh but he won a lot last year he won that shanghai masters which is defending a thousand Finals of the Paris Masters is another 500 points, and I'm curious to see what Nadal has uh, in the remainder of his schedule. Denis Shapovalov will be playing in Tokyo as well, getting set for Mio Mir in the first round. Uh, a tough loss for Braden Schnur in qualifying. Uh, six, lo- six love, six love to Pablo Andujar. I will also mention in Beijing, uh, Felix Oje seen pressing on in his season. He has Albert Ramos-Venoyas in the first round. Vasek Pospisil uh, fell in qualifying. You are looking listening to matchpoint Canada you can find us on Twitter at matchpoint can I'm Ben Lewis he's Mike McIntyre you can find me at Ben Lewis sN 590 and find Mike at McIntyre tennis uh, we'll move to the women's side and before we kind of delve into uh, the Beijing uh, action and the China Open we got to start with the news about Bianca Andrescu because we we knew it was coming but it was officially confirmed just the other day that her and Gabby Dobrowski have qualified for the WTA Finals in uh, coming in Shenzhen at the end of October. So for me, this is just kind of a cherry on top of what has been an unbelievable season.
1: Yeah, it almost doesn't really like affect me because I feel like I've become numb to all the success that Bianca's had. And, and for Gabby, I have to say it was kind of expected. You know, when 2019 started, if I had to pick any Canadian tennis player to make the year-end finals, I would have put my money, not that I have any, but on Gabby Dabrowski, yeah. um, just given her... Strong, strong play in the doubles world the past few seasons, but for bianca, you're right, it's absolutely uh, you know the cherry on top for her to, to end the season at that event and uh, and you know she's not just going to go there to uh, you know enjoy the experience. she's going to go there with every intent and every capability to potentially win that. Now she will lose at some point this season or or early in the next, I suppose. I mean wouldn't that be wild if she finished 2019 without a loss, but realistically, you know, it's gotta happen at some point. Uh she got by Sasnovich uh six two two six six one. Her comments afterwards were interesting. She said, I forgot what losing feels like. How do you take those comments? Because I can imagine that getting under the skin of some of her potential opponents.
0: <laughs> uh that that just strikes me as an unbelievably uh confident player. And uh, I, I don't think we're seeing I don't think we're seeing arrogance uh, at this time, but you know, she would be well within her right to be a little arrogant with the way she's played this season, uh, she has been in a way unbeatable for lengthy stretches of time this year. Uh, so to me, um, that that is just you know words of an athlete who is really in the zone and has remained in that zone uh, really since she made that return at Rogers Cup all the way till now, where she's playing in Beijing. And you, and you think about the loss, the last time she actually lost on a tennis court, and we're going all the way what back
1: to. February is that right? Yeah, it's craziness. Yeah. I, and and I don't take her comments as, as arrogant either because you know, we've gotten to know her fairly well over the the course of of this season uh, and I wouldn't say arrogant is is one of those words you'd use to describe her. She's being honest and that's how she feels. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying if I am one of her opponents, you know, and I'm talking in the locker room, "Hey, did you hear what Bianca said?" it's going to be an eye roll, you know what I mean? Because I can just see that rattling some people the wrong way and, and giving a little extra motivation. You know, there's already going to be motivation because she's the most recent slam winner. Right, right. But I could just see that giving a little extra fuel to some people to want to be the first one to beat her in all these months.
0: Yeah, you might be right. And uh, at the same time, I would think that uh, the way the tour is shaping up and and they've, you know, bore witness to this Canadian who's 19 years old from Mississauga kind of take over and beat everybody, beat everybody in the top 10. Uh, hopefully they wouldn't need any extra fuel uh, to kind of get that motivation to want to be the player that knocks Bianca off the pedestal. She's on this dominant winning streak. It's now 15 in a row with that victory over Sasnovich. Elise Mertens is going to be a tough competitor. They had a great match actually at the U S open. That was uh, in the quarterfinals uh, where Bianca rallied from a set down there. I'm sure she is hungry to avenge that loss. That's going to be Bianca's second round opponent. So, uh, yeah, uh, she's going to be the player right now on the tour that everybody is gunning for. I, I think for years we were used to that being Serena Williams. Bianca isn't Serena level. She's just having a fantastic season. She's the U.S. Open champion, but nobody has knocked her off that pedestal yet. Uh, I do you know, caution people. She is going to lose matches. Uh, she's not going to win every match she plays. She's not going to win every tournament she plays. Uh, but for now, uh, just enjoy it. As, as, it, as it comes, and uh, she's a contender everywhere she goes.
1: Absolutely, and uh, I had someone point out to me the other day something to the effect that, uh, you know, Bianca's last loss and Jeannie's last win were roughly around the same time, and I'm not going to touch this one myself, but it's just like what polar opposite seasons from the most recent Canadian number one and, and the current one, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly we're, we're all hoping that Jeannie can get that win and, and end this streak to, uh, to finish off 2019 with some positives on uh, on the tennis court.
0: Yeah, we're certainly hopeful of that. Gabby Dabrowski, who uh, we mentioned uh, qualifying for the WTA Finals, with Julie Zhu, uh, they are playing doubles as well at the China Open and won their first-round match. They will take on the Pliskova sisters in doubles next. Ashley Barty and Carolina Pliskova were the top two seeds there, but Yelena Ostapenko uh, knocked out Pliskova in the first round. Naomi Osaka is, of course, there, and she's coming off that title in Osaka, Japan and Alina Svitolina, your number three seed. Uh, So all the top players really in Beijing, and we will see the top eight players in Shenzhen in singles and in doubles. Uh, You know, it's a slower time of the season, which we've acknowledged a couple times after the majors pass, after the U S open ends. I, I think we do hit that lull where we feel like tennis is slightly over in a way, but we still do have these big events. So My question, Mike, how how do you try and kind of stay engaged in the tennis season after the majors are over?
1: Well, for you and me, it's a little bit special because we get to do this uh, podcast, uh, you know, for the rest of the season. That keeps me motivated. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something I'm looking forward to every week. What can we talk about? What directions can we go? What guests can we get? So since I've been doing this with you, so I guess I got to give you props. um, (laughs) You know, it's definitely brought up my level of enthusiasm for late season tennis, but... But prior to doing this and and prior to being sort of on the media side of things, I had a tough time post-U.S. Open maintaining my interest. And it's not just because of tennis. I mean, any sport. But tennis takes sports to the next level in terms of just how long and grueling the season is. I mean, my other sport that I love is hockey. But come June, once they hand out the Stanley Cup, it's like, thank God hockey's over. I can't take any more of this. So Mm. for tennis, you know, some things, uh, you know, for me is, uh, I mean, hey, if you have the chance to go catch any tennis live, whether it be big tournament or small tournament, that's always a lot of fun. Personally, now that it's uh, basically October, I'm getting excited for the 60,000K uh, Tevlin Challenger that we have here in Toronto. Yep. That's uh, you know some quality tennis for players outside the top 100 that you get to see up close and personal. So going to catch some tennis live, uh, and then maybe following a new player, like find some new player, get behind them, track their results, learn a bit about them, and maybe that'll also help you sort of, uh, you know, wind down the season with some newfound uh, enjoyment.
0: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I think a lot of the fans from Canada here are just kind of keeping their eyes peeled on Bianca, for example, or Shapovalov or Felix Oje-Aliassime. But, yeah, find another exciting young player like Alex Diemenauer, for example, who we mentioned earlier in the year, and it would be uh, very easy to, for earlier in the episode, rather, and very easy to forget that he has won three three ATP titles this season and is so, so exciting to watch. Uh, one thing I sometimes like to relive, and, you know, YouTube is a great source for this because they have highlight. Of anything is watching uh, some of the best matches of the year, uh, whether it's from the U.S. Open or from Wimbledon. Uh, there's so many fantastic highlight packs, and then you can also find you know best trick shots of the month and best highlight highlight reels of of the summer. These types of things, uh, which always keep me engaged, and then you get ready for the next event. Um, obviously, in the Asian swing, some of this live tennis is happening one, two a.m. in the morning. So yeah, I understand people aren't going to be watching. It at that hour here, which is fine. I'm one of those people, but uh, I like the highlight. i for the uh,
1: I'll do it for the Aussie Open. I will get up at yes, all of hours too. for the Aussie Open. But uh, but this time of year, no offense to those tournaments. Uh, I just, yeah, I can't, I can't sacrifice my sleep at this point. No, in time. No,
0: no, it's a little too much. Uh, one other event just from last week I'll mention, Arena Sabalenka was able to defend her title at the Wuhan Open, defeating Allison Risk in the final. That's her second title of 2019 and fourth overall. We do have a special giveaway to wrap up this week's episode, and it is a signed ball uh, by Angelique and uh, we were thinking of some ideas to, to get listeners engaged, have a chance to win this ball. And I would love for our champion uh, of this prize to be a Kerber fan. And she has been a fantastic player, of course, three-time Grand Slam champion. So I was thinking, not only do you have to retweet our episode to have a chance, uh, you should also share with us your favorite memory of Angelique Kerber.
1: Yeah, that's good because uh, for Kerber fans, you know, it's been uh, a tough go in 2019. And oddly enough, if you look at the odd years versus the even years, Mm -hmm. there's a distinct difference for Angie Kerber, uh, especially at the Slams. So this could be a positive way for you to finish off your season being an Angie Kerber fan and hoping that 2020 brings more, you know, even success, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, retweet and tell us your, your favorite uh, moment from Kerber, the thing you like the most about her, and we'll throw your name in there for this uh, opportunity. I saw this ball get signed personally, so it's not me and Ben in some back room with a Sharpie. It was <laughs> Angie Kerber at the Verified. Rogers Cup this summer yep. in Toronto, and thanks to Tennis Canada for providing that to us and um maybe next week we can also just talk about a little bit uh collecting tennis memorabilia what's out there and and if from our childhoods or or younger days we uh we enjoy getting our hands on an autographed tennis ball or, or things like that and uh and, and this week, we'll we'll leave it on, on this note. Get your retweets out there, and uh, hopefully we draw your name next week on our next episode.
0: Yes, hopefully. Good luck if uh, you are able to enter the contest. I hope you can. Just have to retweet this latest episode. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben, he's Mike, and we will talk to you next time.